Hello. Hello. And a spooky welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience shivers, and everybody wins. Inside each and every one of us, there's a skeleton. <laughs> struggling to escape. And perhaps at no other time of the year is it closer to succeeding than at Halloween. Fitting, therefore, that tonight's theme is Skull and Crossbones. Six stories from the dark side to while away the stormy hours until midnight. We'll have three terrible tales in the first half, followed by a nautical interval when you can practice walking the plank or take x-rays of each other to find out why alcohol makes walking the plank so very difficult. In the second half, we've got the gloomiest ever infamous Lies League book quiz. No, gloomier than that. Followed by three more ghastly stories. In about a minute, spirits willing, we'll begin our first tale. But before we do, it is important to show the dead the proper respect. So please, turn your infernal mobile devices off or to tremble, and we shall begin. Our first story of the evening will be Kaleidoscope Girl by Sarah Richardson. Read by Lucy Mabbott. Sarah is originally from Essex and now lives in South London, where she works as a journalist and editor. She writes short stories with the encouragement of a writing group she formed with classmates from a course at City University. This is her second story for Lions League. Lucy is an actress from Derbyshire in the East Midlands. She graduated from Guildhall School of Drama in 2020 and has recently moved back to London. She recently appeared in Gambit, the Exeter Fringe, and has previously read Just a Nice Family Christmas for Liars League. Lucy! Kaleidoscope Girl by Sarah Richardson The first time she saw the girl... Jen was floating on her back, gazing at the foy shore through the frame of her feet. The days had reached that point in September where the late afternoon light was so low it splashed against the swell, sending tiny golden flecks spinning across the water. The ferry that carried passengers the short trip from the town's tourist-packed streets to the opposite harbour, the sparse two-pub one-shop hamlet of Pole Ruin, had dropped back to six an hour. Before long, it would be the winter service. Jen felt the water under her lift, flatten, lift again. The sun's warmth washed against her face, easing the swell's chill. She liked watching the lights graze the sea, shooting off in all directions. Out here, in the middle of the little channel, she was at the centre of a kaleidoscope, the pattern around her constantly shifting, obscuring her from anyone's view. Boys Harbour Front was the quietest she'd seen it, but there were still plenty of people around. Groups with glinting wine glasses thronging outside the Haveners, 
A gaggle of children clambering over the huge bronze rook statue that towered over the harbour railings. Half a dozen adults were unpacking boxes of food and champagne onto a picnic bench, flapping away circling gulls. The screeching cause almost masked the tinkle of breaking glass. The girl was away off from the other children, over by the jetty. She seemed to be watching them, but made no attempt to join in. Jen wondered if she was shy or if there'd been a falling out. Maybe she just didn't like what was going on with the rook, seeing so many feral kids swarming over it. A kind soul. The children started edging along the railings. Just one boy in full football kit kept clambering over the metal bird, sliding down its shiny back, hauling himself up again. The girl ran over, perhaps sensing a playmate. She seemed to be saying something. The boy ignored her, carried on climbing. She stayed there, staring up at him. And Jen was struck by the drabness of her dress against the boy's bright clothes. Then she turned and ran towards the town, bare feet flying. Not all the local families were struggling, some quite the opposite, but enough were, and badly, that Jen felt a stab of sadness. She lay back again, turning her face to the sky. The wispy cirrus clouds were crowding closer together, the water's coolness more noticeable as the sun dropped. It was probably time to head back troll the internet for a film to watch. She got through the caravan's DVDs in the first week of her summer escape, when she wouldn't turn on a laptop for fear her London life would reach out of the screen and snatch her back in, back to the pressure of ten-hour workdays, pressure from her on-off boyfriend, pressure from her parents to look after her well-being. The caravan was as cheap a rent as she could get, and its film collection was suitably eclectic. It had, however left her with a dubious taste for low-budget thrillers. She rolled onto her front, turned back to face the patch of harbour sand at Pole Ruin, where her bundle of clothes was waiting by the jetty steps. The cold tugged her skin as she swam towards the shore. The next day, around five o'clock, Jen was back in the water again, having waited till the kayaks and pleasure boats had pretty much gone from the channel. She scanned the foy shoreline, the champagne drinkers had been supplanted by teenagers with cans, playing snatches of songs off someone's phone. The rook was left to its own devices. The only young children Jen could make out were a boy and girl running up and down the jetty, jumping the encroaching waves. Jen squinted. She was sure it was the same girl she'd seen the day before, and the thought she might have found a friend pleased her. Already, Jen's skin was tingling with the cold. As the summer waned, she was finding it harder to stay in the sea as long as she'd like. She'd loved the water since childhood, just for what it was. But there was also something to be said for escaping things that needed escaping. The boy ran towards a woman at the railings and was swiftly enveloped in a towel. Jen expected the girl to follow, but she kept jumping. Jen scanned the shore, but no one else looked to be watching out for her. A moving boat caught Jen's eye. When she turned back, the girl had vanished. Jen was trying to see where she'd gone when she heard a shout from behind her. She flipped over. An old man was waving at the sea, a woman remonstrating. Jen pulled into a crawl. She stumbled out of the water. The couple had moved to a bench overlooking the strip of sand. They seemed all right, 
but she supposed she ought to check. She picked up a towel and made towards them. Everything okay? The woman looked up, raising a hand to her eyes. Here it is, yes. How about out there? You came in at quite a pace. Jen shook the water from her ears. I thought I heard shouting, that's all. The woman's cheeks twitched. Sorry for that. Truth be told, you gave Johnny a bit of a scare. We didn't see you go out, see? We just saw you bob up in the middle, like you'd come from nowhere. John fiddled with his watch strap. His fingers were shaking. Jen felt bad now for going over. The woman carried on. Not often we see people in the border this time of day, at the end of the season. Bet with all this fuss about wild swimming, as you call it, I suppose we shouldn't have been so surprised. Oh, the swimming's not a new thing for me. I've always liked the water here, Jen said. The woman brightened, and Jen immediately wished she hadn't engaged. Begging your pardon, me, lovely. It's just we didn't recognise you. You from Elfoy? Originally, Jen said. I moved a little while back. This was true in essence, of course, but given her family had uprooted to London before she was walking, the last part always felt a little bit more like a lie. I'm staying in Paul Ruin for a bit. Sensible girl, John said, acknowledging her for the first time. Oh, we've not been over the water in years. Oh, run with Emmets. Jen nodded. At least she knew Emmets were tourists. It made her feel less of an imposter. Sorry if I alarmed you just then. I doubt you'd have known that you were pretty much in the spot where it happened. Jen waited for John to elaborate, but he kept looking straight ahead, saying nothing. The light bouncing off the boat split his face, casting half of it in shadow. She realised the couple were waiting for her to go, but her curiosity was piqued. She hated herself, but asked anyway. Sorry, it's just... Where what happened? The woman's face soured. Where the boat returned when John lost his sister. I thought you were from Roundier. I, I am, but I had no idea. I'm, I'm sorry. The woman glanced at her husband. It was a long time ago. Their only children, but oh, for you to become proper tourist bait, folk making of all sorts. There's even a ghost walk now. Some out of work actor from Plymouth saying she could have been seen walking the streets when the sun's going down, looking for someone to play with. Though I suppose it's better than when the couple that took on the Havern has put it out her spirit was trapped in that bloody bird statue. That's why John never goes over. Pirates, people are taking a person's grief like that and using it for many. If I had my way, they'd all... The woman's anti-tourism diatribe continued, her words swirling into the wind. Jen watched her mouth moving, but her mind was on the girl. Jen knew she was prone to suggestion, but there was something disconnected about the child. The way no one really seemed to interact with her. John's raised voice pulled Jen's focus back. I said... When did you say you moved? Jen scrunched her toes in the sand. I was pretty young, but his still sort of feels like home. The couple were silent. This time, Jen took the cue to leave. Murmuring goodbye, she headed back towards the hill. 
Every day for the next week, Joan kept to her routine, taking care always to swim in the same line to the spot she'd been in the day she first saw the girl. Every day she was there, playing near the other children, but never really with them. And every day, Jen entertained more and more the possibility they didn't really see her. The idea of ghosts seemed ridiculous, but she hadn't seen anything to rule it out. The thing to do would be to find some rational explanation for the girl's detachment. For John's sake, more than hers, she needed to get closer, watch her leave the harbour front, see where she went. The day she chose was a Thursday. She walked down to the harbour at five as usual, but instead of going into the water, she stopped at the jetty. The ferry was just leaving Foy. She was the only passenger waiting to go the other way. The boat had almost arrived when a man called out from behind her. Thought you kept away from Foy these days. She turned. John and his wife were at the top of the steps. I do, but... She hesitated. If she were John, would she want to know what she was doing? She looked at his eyes. They were roomy. Dull. Older than even they should be. This was his past. His loss. Maybe his hope, too. He had every right to know. She gripped the railing. I know how this will sound, but please hear me out. What you and your wife told me about your sister, I've been thinking about it a lot. Because one day, when I was swimming, before I met you, I was watching this girl. Well, not watching at first. It's more like I noticed her once because... Because no one else seemed to. And now, after what you said, every day when I swim, I look for her again. And every time I see her, it's like no one else does. And honestly, I don't normally believe in this stuff, but it's like she's... She's in a different space. One where no one else is. So I thought if I went over and saw her properly, tried to talk to her maybe, I'd be able to tell you if there was any possibility. She trailed off. John was no longer looking at her, but his wife, hands on hips, looked like she could hurl her into the sea. Quite finished, Avia. Then we'll be going. I suggest you do the same. The couple turned, walked slowly away, never looking round. The ferry was waiting, and as Jen stepped on board, she felt the sting of tears. She wasn't looking for the girl when she saw her, sitting on the foyer jetty. Up close as the ferry pulled in, she just looked like any other child. A bit messy, but that was it. A rush of shame surged in Jen's throat. The girl lifted her face. They locked eyes. And then she was gone, dissolved in myriad tiny splinters of light. Thank you, Lucy. Our second story will be Pirate Meat by Ken Tao, read by Andrew Bagley. Ken attended City University of London's short story course in 2019 and is a regular contributor to Inside Croydon, 
Levening is award-winning reportage of local government goings-on with whimsical articles on walks, arts, pubs and pandemics. He teaches law, politics and history. Andrew worked for the council in the 70s, acted in the 80s, was in business in the 90s and noughties, and is now back to acting in the 2020s. He may return to the council later. His most recent project was playing security guard in Ted Lasso. Andrew! Pirate Meat by Ken Towell. How times have changed. The sine qua non of the enjoyable social occasion for many people used to be cocaine. However, now that cocaine is readily available in Asda, with some health warning that no one reads along the lines of serious risk of turning you into a twat, (laughs) it's no longer fashionable. I suppose they needed tax revenue from somewhere to pay for all that borrowing in the early 20s. And don't get me started on the Animal Rights Act. I hesitate to use the hackneyed term political correctness gone mad. But if, they ever, but if it ever had any meaning, that time is now. We are one step away from giving dolphins the vote and armadillos a passport. It is militant veganism gone mad. Every sentient thing has rights. The consequence being that, while nobody says it these days, we are all so keen not to offend. A dinner party is hardly worth going to. You can't eat meat. At least, not without the animal's consent. Given that animals are not cursed like us with the knowledge of the concept of death, nor blessed with the gifts of speech or rational thought, they are unable to give meaningful consent. And so, those of us who still have carnivorous urges have to rely on the smugglers and black marketeers, known colloquially as the meat pirates. My own black beard, if you will, operates, or rather used to operate, from the Coach and Horses in Hastings, East Sussex. It is one of the few pubs in the town in which natives and filth mix freely. Filth, of course, stands for failed in London, try Hastings. (laughs) I am neither native nor filth. I was just down from law-abiding Lewis for the day, having been informed that this was a place where deals might be made and illicit flesh might be procured. My black beard does not have a black beard. She does not have an eye patch or a wooden leg, at least as far as I know. If she owns a parrot, she does not bring it into the public bar. Modern-day pirates, meat pirates anyway, practice discretion. Their clients, fearful of the disapproval of the vegetarian consensus and the damage to reputation, demand it. And, of course, they themselves are mindful of the risk of the custodial sentence that comes with conviction for distribution. Decades of red meat consumption had taken their toll on me. I tended towards corpulence. I had a rubicund face. My fingers looked like sausages. And not in a good way. 
I am not accustomed to being approached in a pub on a Friday night by a wholly unknown and relatively attractive woman. I remember the first word she spoke to me. You look like a man who hasn't had a piece of meat in a while. Caught off guard, I struggled to answer. No, I said. You look like you could do with a steak. Know what I mean? I did. The physiological response was immediate and profoundly felt. I salivated. It's been a while, I said, gradually relaxing in her presence. She seemed kind. There was a pause. I realised that I had to be the one to get to specifics, to commit to the deal in the way that an undercover police officer couldn't for fear of accusations of entrapment. You sell meat, I said more loudly than was prudent, and I saw her flinch and raise her finger to her lips. Sorry, I said, sorry, 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 I've never done this before. You've never talked about meat before. Not in a pub with a pirate, I said. How does it work? She sighed and then spoke very quietly and deliberately. We exchange numbers. You text me your address and what you want. I text back a price and bank details. If you're happy, you make the transfer, and in the evening, a lad from Uber Eats delivers your order. <laughs> bank details? Yes, I'm an out-of-work butcher with a mortgage to pay, not a teenage gangster. I really can't be doing with cash. Is there a problem with that? No, I said. I thought hard. Then I thought of one. How does it appear on the bank statement? Personnel services, she said. You are joking. Personal services. No, personnel services, like an employment agency. I am quite literally not fucking with you. Now, shall we do business? I tried her Lincolnshire sausages and her loin chops. Her ox cheeks were delicious. I ordered pavet steak and corn-fed chicken and maple-cured bacon. I enjoyed everything she gave me. According to my bank statement, I was soon spending a little over £300 a month on personnel services. I didn't see her for a year or so after that. Everything was done over the phone and that was just fine. But I have to confess that I went down to Hastings a few times during that year and on each trip I paid a visit to the Coach and Horses where I drank a pint of Harvey's and then took the train back home. And then, last January, I saw her, and I said hello, and offered her a drink, and ordered her a gin and tonic, and asked how business was. She appeared to be pleased to see me, but I put that down to wishful thinking. I am not much of a conversationalist, and it all went a bit quiet once her drink arrived, and I had paid for it. So I asked her what her favourite meat was. I thought it was a good question. Actually, she said, I never touch it. Health more than anything. Haven't for years. Anyway, probably not a good idea to develop a liking for my own product. Know what I mean? I knew what she meant. At the prices she was charging, she was much better off selling the meat and sticking to a strictly plant-based diet. She looked around. Listen, she said, have you got a freezer? I could get you a whole lamb, butchered perfectly, rack, legs, shoulders, scrag end, breast, I said. Everything, she said. 
could do the lot for 500 pounds, keep you going for months. Maybe I could throw in a Poussin and a kilo of chipolatas. What do you say? What is it, a, a closing down sale? Pretty much. Frankly, John, she said, I need to get out of the game. Seems like half of London's old drug dealers have retrained, ready to move into the meat market. Probably more handy with a cleaver than I am. I figure I can sell them my client list and get out. Meanwhile, I'm having a big sale. Get a bit of cash together and leave you with enough to tide you over till the new boys get their supply lines sorted. Sound good? What about mutton? I said. <laughs> Might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. <laughs> the truth is, I was worried about running out of meat and I didn't want to be dealing with some sweaty kid who would probably bulk out his chicken with injected water. And then the door burst open. Everybody stay where you are. This is a police raid. As the situation sunk in, we looked at each other. Those involved in clandestine activity instinctively suspect those around them, and then looked embarrassed at momentarily suspecting the other. There were only a few minutes to talk before the police separated us. Don't worry, she said. As long as you haven't got any meat on you, you'll be okay. You haven't, have you? Not a sausage, I said. <laughs> you buy sex, okay? At this, I looked blank. Fortunately, I, I had a few seconds to work it out. We were led into separate corners by uniformed constables. I was informed that I was being detained under section something of the Animal Rights Act and asked if I had anything I shouldn't. When I said I didn't, I was asked if I consented to a search there and then, or if I refused, in which case I would be held at a police station pending search with the right to a legal representative, if I had one present. There was a sudden flurry of activity a few metres away when the police officer found a small bag in the young man's pocket. What's this, Sonny? He asked, holding the bag an inch away from the man's face. He couldn't have been more than 19. Pork scratchings, he said, almost sobbing. All right, lad, said the policeman, you'll be okay. Tell us where you got them from and you'll be on your way with a caution before you know it. Let's go they went outside. I was searched and found to be meat-free, and then asked what I had been doing there. I said what I had been instructed to say. I'm not an actor. It didn't sound right. <laughs> By sex. And I said, and then I added, okay, because I wasn't sure if that should be included. It sounded more belligerent than I wanted it to. <coughs> The constable told me to turn my phone on and show him. He scrolled through the most recent messages in the sent folder. Whoa, he said. What's this? Last week message to be rump. Just rump? How do you explain that? I tried again. I buy sex. I didn't have the okay this time. It's code, I said, so no one finds out. I felt I now sounded like an authority on the matter. He looked back at the phone, scrolled some more. Ah, he said, also to be. What's this? Tongue? <laughs> I tried to imbue the three words, imbue the three words with as much raw sadness as I could muster. <laughs> I, I buy sex. <laughs> 
He let me go after advising me to think up code words that were less suggestive of illegal activity. (laughs) I was, in his eyes, a sad case, no doubt, but no lawbreaker. I never saw Blackbeard again. I did receive a postcard, though. Turns out she's living in Leon, in the north of Spain, stuffing meat and paprika into intestines to make artisan chorizo. She is happy to have found lawful and fulfilling employment. For my part, I have moved on. I made my final bank transfer to personnel services, and a young lad bought the constituent parts of a sheep around the next day. I eked out the pirate meat for a good six months, and then swore off the flesh of sentient beings forever. I have been on the meat wagon for two years now. I look younger than I did, and I weigh less, and what with the low price of cocaine in Asda? I'm hundreds of pounds a month richer, much more confident socially, and I don't have to worry about breaking the law. Anyone fancy a line? (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. Our third story, the last one before the interval, will be Skullduggery by Maria Kyle, read by Stephen Buxton. Maria is an Oxford-based freelance editor and fiction writer whose short stories have appeared in anthologies published by the University of East Anglia and Arachne Press. Her work has been read in Hong Kong and translated into DSL for performance on YouTube by the amazing Marcel Hirschman for Arachne. She's a bit obsessed with pirates. (coughs) Stephen trained at the London Centre for Theatre Studies in 2002, finishing his training with a run in the Accrington Pals at Germain Street Theatre. He then spent time in Fringe Theatre and student film productions before leaving London in 2007. He now lives in Hastings, drowning in his day job as a vet. With very little time left over for acting in the written world, he is delighted to be taken to the stage once again for Lies League. Stephen! Skullduggery by Maria Kyle. The pirates are 13 days out of Port Royal, having drunk themselves liquid and swived themselves black-eyed on the last merchantsman's bullion, the dawn they sight the derelict, the first vessel in doldrum drifting weeks. But the tropic sun's a flaring torch, half quenched in the horizon by the time the siren draws near. The stranger ship's silhouette against the red-gassed sky is still as a gibbeted corpse. The crews, restless and underfed, dogs too long chained, Captain Vittery prays for bounty, leaving first mate Pereira aboard to keep order. He trusts Pereira, a grizzled Portuguese, with his life or death, whichever came uppermost. The boarding party rows over in a jolly boat. Ten feet off, Vittery calls HALT! High on her starboard flank is her faded name, Bay Dreamer. An odd, whimsical appellation smacking more of a pleasure craft than a three-masted schooner. He's brought Bartolo, the hulking second mate, 
red-headed Logan the boatswain, Ashoy the Lascar, and Gruff Svensson, his best men by a league. Mickey the cabin boy comes too, for luck, wanted to show the colour of his courage. Ahoy, daydreamer, bitterly calls, any aboard? Hemp, creep, and wave wash, otherwise dead quiet, a knotted rope trails down the hull, an open invitation. He thought she'd be a wreck, scoured by salt and storm sides, barnacled ropes ragged, but her sails are full-rigged and her wheel fixed, just as if a navigator had stepped below decks for dinner. I am Captain Vittory of the Buccaneer ship Siren. We're eighty men and forty cannon. Only a slight exaggeration both ways. Hungry and bloody. Do you yield? Nothing. Spenson's flame, blue eyes glitter. Bartolo cracks, scarred knuckles. They're keen as wolves to hunt or fight. Time to turn them loose. Vittory grins. We gave her a fair chance. Instantly, Svensson swarms up the climbing ropes, followed by the rest. Mickey's last eyes gleaming stark white as he grips his little dagger in his teeth. Boarded, the ship feels empty as a plundered chest. The deck's a wooden desert beneath the womb. Easy pickings, no resistance. But the lads are wary, alert, pistols cock, cutlasses drawn... He knows what they're thinking. Ghost ship. Clapping a ringed hand to his good eye, the captain squints about blindly with his pearl one. He's that Cornish filldrat, Oren Sate, perfect for this loss, scorning an eye patch, but he plucked a vast pearl from the next booty seas and pushed it into his hollow socket. The crew fear the bend of his oyster's eye more than his real one. At night, between hammocks, they whisper. It sees the dead. What's the matter, lads, he cries. Can't see no ghosts. Nervous laughter stutters to silence. Mist rises from black water. The quicker they're off this brig, the better. Scour it! Build your spectacle, bitterly shouts, striding with forge assurance towards the captain's cabin. Any loot to be had will lie there. Behind him, the boarding party scatters. He tosses bunk and drawers, mattress and cabinets. No gold, no script, no plate, barren as a mermaid's teat. On the mahogany desk lie compasses, map, dial, astrolabe. Then his practice pirate's eye spies a hidden drawer within the ship's log. The last entries two days back, but the handwriting's crabbed and blotched in an unfamiliar language. A foreign ship, known of course. Yet till lately, she'd at least won aboard. The vessel's undamaged, no boats missing. But if she's still crewed, why let her drift? Only the numbers are readable, dates and quantities. He finds an inventory, perhaps twenty of something, thirty-four of something else. Below, nines crossed out, only eight remain of what? And the last item, whatever it is, but one red circle. His good eye aches, cruising its sparks pop against velvet black in his left blind socket. He grins. His pearl eye don't see ghosts, it sees fireworks. Tugging open the secret drawer to return the log, but till he stops dead as Davy Jones, staring at the bottom bo- drawer bottom as if at a ghost indeed. 
A crudely drawn compass star, crossed by bones pointing the ordinal directions northwest, southeast, northeast, southwest. Captain Saints Sigil. Saints been here. And bitterly, grudgingly admits there never was a ship the fame glorious swab boarded that he didn't take. So where's he now? Outside the decks clear, the men must have gone below. Bitterly's lamp lurches, flinging unsteady light as he clambers down. Mickey and Bartolo loom swarthy shadows against charcoal dark. Found anything? Aye! Bartolo flashes gold incisors, nodding at an alcove. It's a shelved surgeon's look, jumbled with bottles. Bitterly uncorks one with his teeth, swigs, then spits. Laudanum! Pints of it, they dreamer indeed. Yet this is no hospital ship. But his spine prickles and his socket aches. If there's one thing he loathes more than saint, it's a mystery. Logan sings out from the galley kitchen. No more than a handful of biscuit here. The captain curses. Sirens Russians are running short. They'd be nearing Ivory Coast by now if it weren't for these god-blasted doldrums. Not in the mess. Lashings of rum, the boatswain appears, grinning, brandishing a keg. Thirty-four of these. Thirty-four. Second item in the illegible log. Mickey, barks bitterly. Haul him up above. As Mickey springs to the task, bitterly looks around. Where's Spenson? Gun deck, grunts, grunts Bartolo. Ashoy, searching the berths. He points out. Ashoy! Roars the captain. The Alaska pants out of the leaping lamp shadows. Captain! No steady booty! Ashoy leads him among the hammocks. A silent forest of limply swaying canvas. A loose pearl rolls about the rough boards. He spies another. Then a glinting doubloon. Then more. Treasure is scattered heedlessly about, as if dropped by children summoned from a game. A bangle swings from a hook. Twixt hammocks of gold chains strung like a warning rope. Bitterly snatches it, a necklace, same as any other. Then why does this discarded treasure chill him so? Descending to the gun deck, Bitterly's lantern gleams on a double row of enormous cannon, far too big for this middling ship. Ahoy! Svensson! No reply, but the Swedes, a bulldog, bellicose and bold to take two Ordinary men to put him down. Where's the gunpowder? asked the mate. Svensson said, stack it on deck, Ashoy volunteers. Bitterly frowns. How many kegs? A score. Twenty was in the logbook, too. Twenty powder kegs, nothing for this arsenal. And where's the cannonball? The captain surveys the mighty guns. Broad as tree trunks, gape mouthed, heavy and hollow as a sinner's soul. What's queerer, they're turned inward instead of out of the cannon ports of the enemy. These ports are too small, says Logan, wonderingly examining them. The cannon had never fit through. Vittory's blood runs sharp, cold. His pirate instinct shrieks that they should scamper like rats down a line, but he never yet left the ship empty-handed. He needs something to throw these muttering curs aboard the siren. Some prize, or plunder, or prisoners at least. There's someone on this tub, he growls, and we'll find them. 
but the gun decks bare as a gull's rock. Nowhere to hide. Then Bartolo, inspired, seizes a stoking rod and plunges it into the nearest cannon. And instead of clanging iron, a soft thump. Christos! mutters the second mate, disbelieving. What's here? He shoves till the stoking rod will go no farther, then tries to pull it out. The rod won't budge. It's stuck, says Ashoy. His sword's unsheathed, his brow moist, even in the gun deck stank chill. Stuck my pick on arse, snaps Bartolo. Someone's got hold of it. Fetch a light. Mickey, running down from shifting the rum keg, shines his lantern high, shadows yawning. Logan's pistol's cocked and aiming at the yawning cannon muzzle as Bartolo struggles to yank out the lot rod. Whatever has hold of the other end is, unbelievably, as bare strong as he. Suddenly, the rod's released, flying out so hard it embeds in the low ceiling. Bartolo's triumphant cry chokes as he's dragged headfirst into the cannon. Half off the ground, his wide shoulders wedge in its black mouth, gurgling screams muffled by his own body. They leap, hauling at their shipmate like an anchor in a gale as he thrashes. A speared fish shrieks, stripping their eardrums. Suddenly he's out, hitting the deck, candle white and limp blood spewing from a deep gash in his throat. And then what the captain had thought shadows of the shifting lantern light begin crawling from the other cannon mouths, horribly elongated, ocean black, yet still somehow shaped like men. Nightmare men, thin and vulpine, moving more like animals than anything with a soul. Rat-like they swarm, squabbling to raven Bartolo's still steaming blood. So that's why Svensson didn't answer. As the things rise, sated, bitterly sees their hair is weed, their eyes black pearls. They are not ghosts of their garish red mouths attest, but they are surely dead. They must sail by night and sleep in the cannons by day, their leaden births keeping out sun rays better even than a coffin. Hence her name, Daydreamer. By daytime, she's a drifting derelict, a fluting trap to lure unwary rescuers or plunderers to feed her ghastly crew. That's how the creatures sustain themselves at sea. That's why there's no food aboard. Bitterly recalls the log entry. Nine scored out, leaving eight. Eight figures surround them, so one was lately lost, meaning someone fought back, took one of the devils down. Hope rises bitter in the captain's throat. The last number and the log, one, circled red. Herded to the brig, he smells for the first time the human stench of sweat and piss and finally understands what there's only one left of and what all that laudanum's for. Like sacks of hard pack or barrels of salt pork, he and his men are fresh stores for the long voyage. He struggles violently as they drag open the brig door, screaming to his crew to fight, and then he sees who lies in that stinking prison. Shrunken and bloodless, Captain's good more rag than cloth, beard to his chest, still his rival sea-green eyes glitter bright. Misery! croaks the withered prisoner. They got you, too! Christ alive! Saint whispers the captain as the iron-barred door clangs. Feast your eyes, Saint says wearily. Be drifting weeks in these damn trolldrums. 
living off me. Food's gone, but they're liberal with the Lord. No, he's just the process. He coughs, spits thin blood. He's studied with unhealed puncture wounds. Arms, necks, ankles, wrists. I offered treasure for my freedom. All I had. They played with it like children. They tossed me in here. What's gold to them? The only currency is blood. The creatures gorge then, but sparingly, leaving Vitaly's men kitten weak but alive. Still hungry, they drag the captain on deck, deck, pointing across the midnight water at the siren. Shanties lilt from her soft, glowing portholes, almost close enough to touch. He understands. Bring them over, and he'll go free. A jacktar's blood is good as a captain's to them, the only currency they know. The siren holds three score fit of strong men, caged and drugged, they'll feed the daydreamer's crew a year more. Meanwhile, she'll sail under darkness and trap another ship when Vitaly's men die, grow ever stronger. A blood bargain. He nods. Four of the things flank him, four more behind. Vitaly's been in tight holes before and wriggled out, but this time there's no escape, not for any living man aboard. It's the only thing to do. Ahoy! He bellows through Captain's Pereira! There's a stir aboard. Watchmen run to the bow, straining their eyes against silvery dark. When Vittory first sees the first mate's figure, for the first time since boyhood, the captain prays. Just above the waterline, Siren's sixteen-port cannon watch him like a row of black eyes. Ferreira! He yells again before fear chokes his throat. Stoke the cannon and fire on this ship! The daydreamer's deck is stacked with rum and powder. Even one direct hit will blast them all to hell. But Pereira's stone still. God rot you, man! Move! roars the captain. I stand out of the water! Savagely, bitterly rejoices as the first salvo thunders. The ship staggers, the foxhole crumples and bursts into flame. And with his pearl eye, and his living one, he watches the fireworks. Thank you, Stephen. The phoenix is officially deceased. By a raft of life, it is an ex- Phoenix. But the nature of phoenixes being what they are, we expect it to resurrect from the grave in approximately 20 minutes. Please take this opportunity to refill your glasses at the bar. See you shortly. Hello! Hello! And welcome back. The phoenix is reborn or undead, depending on your viewpoint. So it's time for the infamous Lysley Spooky Book Quiz. As usual, we can't really see you, which might be a relief. Uh, So if you do know the answer, raise your metacarpals high into the air and scream, pieces of eight. Shall we try that one? Let's give it a go. 
One, two, three. Pieces of Ace! I think nice. they got it. They got what it. A, what a scurvy crew. Katie, can we introduce the books, the prizes? We certainly can. Our book prizes are deathly and terrifying. And our first is the number one bestseller, Death Comes to Pemberley. If you ever wanted to read a Jane Austen-based murder mystery, look no further. And it is by the famous uh, P.D. James, a wonderfully assured follow-on to Pride and Prejudice, says Peter Kemp. Sunday Times, Books of the Year. You kind of know what it's about, don't you, really? I don't have to move from that. And uh, the grandmother and godmother of horror. A beautiful edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. If you haven't read it, enjoy. If you have, get yourself another copy and remind yourself of the chilling tale of the uh, creator and his creation. Uh, Jess Richards's City of Circles. She is a Costa shortlisted author of Snake Ropes. Danu is in mourning for her parents after a disease has ravaged the circus she calls home. She begins a high-wire act with Mori, a charismatic hunchback who wants to marry her. But her mother has entrusted her with a mysterious locket that will lead her down a path Mori cannot follow. A little bit of dark fantasy if that is your jam <laughs> and whose isn't it uh, and if curiosity can you introduce this one I, here I actually can, certain contributor in this anthology of terrifying tales so curiosities is a collection of short stories um, from gallery of curiosities uh, which does audio as well um, and this one is themed horrors uh, and mine is um, Frankenstein inspired. So um, you can always get it signed if you come to Apple's. Oh, yes, with a signed <laughs> copy. This will be fantastic. And of course, Weird Lies, the award winning anthology of horror, slipstream, sci fi, fantasy, and creep from ourselves and the marvellous Arachne Press uh, with whom we work. If you're not lucky enough to win this amazing edition, don't worry. We've got copies available for five pounds. And it seems like my sum up machine is working, so just come to me. I'm gonna spend some money. Okay. Right, so we get on with the questions. First question. In Ian M. Banks' convoluted culture novel, Use of Weapons, what piece of furniture is fashioned from a girl's skeleton? Pieces of eight. Oh, yes. A chair. It's correct! Oh. Very good. That, that was our top one. Uh, which book would you like, Andrew? I want, I want your collection, the, 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 the blue one. Of course you do, of course you do. Excellent, Excellent choice. Second question. The Body Snatcher uh, is an 1884 short story by which famous Scottish writer? Uh, oh, oh, over, over there. No, no, no. We've privileged the audience. Robert Louis Stevenson. It's correct! It well done. Our actor over there is a bit too well read in yeah. voice, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would you like? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sure. Uh, Death Comes to Pebbly, Jane Austen and Murder, Frankenstein, I think you know what that is. City of Angels, Dark Fantasy, and Curiosities. I love Curiosities, please. Hey, yeah. good job. Short stories are flying! Oh, <laughs> Third question. 
The Headless Horseman appears in the 1819 Gothic tale The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But who penned it? Frankenstein for the final question. What profession did the owner of the skull that Hamlet holds have while alive? Oh, I, I, I know really you know. I know you yes, yes. Go on, have a guess. Uh, yes! Yeah! 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 Congratulations to all our very well-read audience. I'm just going to let Katie do her thing. And find the place in the book. And so, we are on to the second half. Our first story of the second half is Convivial, by Rebecca Latin warstrom read by Caroline O'Mahon. Rebecca is an author, teacher, and creative writing PhD student. Her novel, Home, is pretty creepy, and ghosts do appear in her work in progress about Gertrude Bell. She has a book blog, teaches on the novel studio at City University, and also likes to write sound books. Caroline trained at the Oxford School of Drama. Credits include The Taming of the Shrew, Sydney Isn't Shooting Yet, Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds, The Immersive Experience, A Magical Christmas, Macbeth, and Wait Until the End. This has gone a bit... Um... Can I... Oh. I'm not sure. That'll be alright. Don't breathe! Caroline! in the middle of the dining table, next to the potatoes. It is pumping away against the tabletop. No one seems to notice. The white tablecloth is beginning to stain. A ring of yellow plasma is seeping beneath the tableware, the central red mark deepening into a dark, sticky burgundy that resembles port wine gravy. The thudding pumps have a cloying sound that marks the passing of beat to beat, moment to moment, keeping her silent. Her husband's family are catching up, ignoring, not seeing the heart. They began drinking when she was putting the children to bed. They are no longer sober. She watches and listens. It is like 
being inside an old painting of The Last Supper. The colours rich and a little too dark, too heavy. Wonderful, convivial host, so uh, congenial, her father-in-law remarks, warming his glass of wine in the palm of his hand before taking a deep swig. She wonders which one of them is Judas, though it is her heart there, bleeding and bumping against the edge of the serving dish, she has no illusions of herself being cast as the Jesus figure. Who would that be? You keep saying that, her mother-in-law says. I, I don't know why. Well, they were very convivial. She wonders if the repetition is patronising or a way of trying to convince himself. Perhaps he is the preacher. Until you ruined it and left under a black cloud, her mother-in-law adds, nudging her husband with her elbow, encouraging him to continue. She helps herself to more potatoes, the serving spoon millimetres from the unseen heart. I stand by what I said, her father-in-law adds. He's only sorry to have caused upset, her mother-in-law says. More potatoes? Her husband nods as his mother heaps another three potatoes onto his plate, the serving spoon passing over the heart with each journey. It feels strange to look at something that is so intimately hers as an object, just there, in amongst the rest of the dinner, inches from the carving knife. Perhaps the scene is more Frida Kahlo than early Renaissance. She needed to hear it. Her father-in-law takes up the tale again. She's a crackpot and it's only getting worse. He pauses to lift a carefully loaded fork into his mouth, a little gravy escaping onto his lip, the low table lighting catching it like a droplet of dew in the rising sunlight so that it hangs, glistening, full to the point of falling. She can't help but think of the bloody moor of a hunting dog the jewelled remnants of their catch thick with drool, and the scene takes on yet one more painterly aspect. A monk's dining room, perhaps, their table laden, the bodies obscene with gluttony and power. You've met her. Her mother-in-law aims a conversation at her, cutting into the extra potatoes on her plate, their thin skins peeling away under a sheen of butter the same yellow as the plasma, how her mother-in-law stays thin is a mystery. She used to be a secretary, she continues. Made him move into a gated community miles from the tennis club. Believes, I mean, it's ridiculous, but the woman believes she can communicate with the dead. Her father-in-law gesticulates with his wine glass and sends a reflected beam of light bouncing towards her, the wine rolling slowly about the glass with viscous gravity. He looks to her glass. More wine. She shakes her head, holds her hand over the half-full glass. She's not sure she can speak. Her heart is beating less regularly now, and when it does, the movements are erratic. It jumps high enough to tumble onto a plate to leap into a serving dish. There is carrot and parsnip mash and purple sprouting broccoli alongside those buttery potatoes. It could land anywhere. She watches it her hand pressed up against her chest. One moment things had seemed normal, and the next it's as if she's developed a steer... It's as if she's developed a severe astigmatism. The word takes her back to the Last Supper image, 
to bleeding hearts and hands, to the altar where Abraham bound Isaac. Why hadn't she felt it coming out of her body? But there it was. The arteries and pulmonary vein like hollow, boneless arms slapping their way towards the beef. Her father-in-law chews on some gristle, pulls it from his mouth and places it on the side of his plate. It shouldn't be encouraged. She needed to be told the truth, he says. It's one thing offering comfort to a few desperate, bereaved people, her mother-in-law chips in, but to say out of the blue, and she did just come out with it, that you have a message from a dead person to someone who's not even asked. It's, it's outrageous, actually, she smiled. I think it's damn rude. Too right, her father-in-law adds. Who did she say she had a message from? Her husband speaks for the first time. Her heart appears to be slapping closer towards his side of the table. My father, her father-in-law says. He takes a deep breath and suddenly slams his fist hard on the table. She needs to understand that solid fact, science. A table is a table. The dead are dead. It's poisonous, all this metaphysical nonsense. No one asks what the message was. Not hungry, her mother-in-law asks. If she smiles weakly back, no, she really isn't. She watches her heart, there on the table. She watches her father-in-law raise his hand once more, anticipates the noise of the flesh hitting solid wood, winces a little, but the sound doesn't come. His fist falls right through the table to the firm muscle of his thigh. He looks down pushes his chair back a little as if this was what he had always intended, to plant a fist on his leg to emphasise his point. Did they not see? His fist had gone through the table as if it weren't there, shoom, straight through. The rushing sound like a, a beat of air from a fan. She presses her hand in closer to her throat. She, she can't get any air. Are you all right? Her mother-in-law asked. You're not worried about the children. I haven't heard a beat from them since they went to bed. Her father-in-law looks up. Don't tell me you're a believer in all this mumbo-jumbo, he says. No. She shakes her head. Are you choking? Is there something stuck in your throat? She keeps shaking her head. She, she can't breathe. She can't. Her husband gets up from the chair walks behind her and slaps her hard on the back. The air rushes in. She takes a deep breath and everyone smiles, settles back down to their meal. She moves her chair in closer to the table. Thank you, I, I'm fine, really, she says. It's delicious. And she forces herself to cut into the slice of beef, weeping into the carrot and parsnip mash. She shoves the meat between her teeth and chews. The flesh refuses to pull apart in her mouth. Its juices slip down her throat, but its texture hardens. She takes a large sip of wine and feels the meat pushing past her larynx until it lingers, lodged somewhere in her esophagus. Her heart is still beating on the table. The slap appears to have settled it, though where it has settled it is a surprise. It now sits on her husband's plate. So, to finish the story, her father-in-law says, I told her never to mention such poppycock to me again, and, and well, well, they, they didn't say another word, <laughs> quite literally. 
I left a day early. They provided me with a wonderful meal. We had a fabulous day at the club, but uh, I was no longer welcome. I don't know if we'll speak again. It was most confounding. He looks genuinely puzzled. How could I say nothing? You can't let ideas like that take root. He pauses for a moment and looks directly up at her. It's like all that attachment parenting nonsense. She'll just fall further down the rabbit hole and take him with her. You have to nip these things in the bud. He holds her gaze. But now you've fallen out, she says, before she can stop herself. She, she shouldn't have spoken. A few moments ago, she wouldn't have been able to speak. Her father-in-law holds a knife and fork paused above his plate and frowns. Yes, he says. We have. Such an odd woman, her mother-in-law says. It all began so well, her father-in-law adds. They were so convivial. Her mother-in-law puts another two potatoes on her plate. Though I don't know who else would put up with him. He isn't exactly easy, especially now he's started forgetting things. She glances quickly up at her husband, who frowns as he carves another mouthful. Something is out of line. She looks up at her mother-in-law, who is lifting her hand to her throat. Her expression pains. She reaches for a glass of wine, her face wincing as she swallows, and then suddenly, quite unannounced, blood begins to seep through the horizontal blue and white stripes of her organic brushed cotton T-shirt. She pushes her chair back a little and coughs slightly, as if simply dislodging a piece of potato stuck in her throat. But following the blood... The fibres of her T-shirt unfurl outwards, stitching, neatly unravelling. As the material unweaves from her mother-in-law's chest, she sees a heavy metal zip beneath. Sticky and shiny with the luster from the elegant overhead table lights, the dark, coarse zip slowly begins to open. She looks around the table, but as before, no one is paying attention. As the zip unclasps tooth by tooth, her mother-in-law's heart can clearly be seen pulsing out like a tongue, pushing its way through greedy lips. And then, as the last tooth is pulled apart, the heart slips out of her mother-in-law's chest and flops onto the table, sounding like a wet slap and knocking the cutlery away with a distant chink. Is that how her heart came out? She lifts her fingers, trying to feel the jagged teeth of the zip. No one looks up. Her mother-in-law puts her glass back on the table. A funny kettle of fish, that's what my mother would have called her, she says, and picks up her cutlery. Her father-in-law nods at the return to form. As her mother-in-law calmly cuts into her, into her own beating heart, smiling towards her son, he pushes the prongs of his fork into the heart on his own plate. She feels the stab. She watches him lift his knife and pierce the outer fatty tissue that spools out around her heart in buttery tendrils. She feels the serrated edge of the knife cutting deeper, severing the flailing arteries and pulmonary vein that are trying so hard to escape. There is blood everywhere. It could be a scene from a shootout or a chainsaw massacre, pieces of flesh and blood raining down, pasting culpability all around. Their faces are scarlet Jackson Pollocks. And still, the metal chinks against the chinaware. Peristalsis moves food and wine down into eager guts. 
She licks her lips. She probably would have been called funny too. Not funny, ha-ha, but funny odd. She smiles at her mother-in-law, who smiles back, sucking one of her own tiny, writhing purple papillaries from her fork and trapping it with her teeth. Kind, perhaps they might say. All that zealous attention she gives the children, but odd, definitely unconventional, and lucky, very lucky, to have married their son, who turns towards her as if he heard her thought, and, reaching at an awkward diagonal, squeezes her knee under the table, totally unaware of the blood dribbling down from the tablecloth and soaking into the pale blue of his crisply pressed shirt. Well, this is lovely, isn't it? He says, the words forming around half-chewed pieces of her. So good to see you both. Our penultimate story will be One Last Hurrah by Madison McSweeney, read by Silas Hawkins. Madison writes horror and dark fantasy from Ottawa, Ontario. She's the author of The Doom That Came to Melonville, The Forest Dreams with Teeth, and poetry collection Fringewood. Silas continues the family voiceover tradition. He is the son of Peter Garlic Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward 10 Miller. Favourite voice credits include Somerton Mill and Latin Music USA. Silas recently reprised his roles in Francis Beckett's Clement Attlee at the Epstein Theatre, Liverpool. Silas! One Last Hurrah by Madison McSweeney. Green Robbing, I'll confess to. Murder and battery, I will not. I'm no killer. There's no law in the books that condemns a man to the gallows for assaulting someone who's already dead. I could say I did what I did for science. But I won't insult you. I did what I did out of greed. Your, your Honor, you're no stranger to me. You, you know that I come from a good family and that I disgraced them through vice and gambling. You, you may be tempted to view this as further evidence of my character, but I would implore you to have some pity. I believed at the time that this was a victimless crime. We all know the city of Kingston has no shortage of corpses whom none would miss, buried shallowly, all waiting for some productive purpose. My partner in these endeavors was Mortimer Masters, the undertaker's son. I... I don't know what circumstances led him to dishonor his family and their noble occupation, uh, though I can understand why he denies involvement now. 
It was he who let me into the graveyard at dusk, opening the iron gates with a set of rusted keys and pointed me to the freshest graves where the soil was soft. The difficult part was hauling the corpses out of their graves. Amateurs though we were, we devised a network of ropes and pulleys to uh, ease the task. We upturned four graves. I maintained my composure for the first three, uh, regarding the bodies as nothing but discarded medical waste. The illusion was dispelled when I found I knew the final corpse. Alan Lafreniere, a Frenchman who was once engaged to my wife. I did not have a friendly history with the man, although I didn't rejoice at his death. I, I asked Mort... Uh, well, I was feeling a little queasy. I, I asked Mort to lift him into the carriage himself. The sky was blue-black by the time we finished loading the cadavers. But we had made good time. I expressed to Mortimer the sentiment that we might make our delivery and be back in time for a drink before the pubs closed. Our customer was a medical student at Queen's University. Ah, you may ask his name, but I won't give it. Other than financing us, he had no part in this and does not deserve to be caught up in it now. In any case, we never reached him. A block from the cemetery, Mortimer realized that his wristwatch was gone. Oh, he was in a state, though. The watch was a family heirloom, and past and future generations would be bereft at its loss. Moreover, his father would recognize it if he found it on the grounds, and our night enterprise would be shut down. <laughs> not, not that either of us had any desire to stay in this business, Your Honor. <laughs> I... I agreed to help him search, securing my horse before heading back to the cemetery. The streets were clear, and we had no reason to believe that anyone would disturb the carriage and uh, uncover our grim cargo. After nearly an hour of frantic searching, Mort concluded that the watch must have fallen off and buried in one of the refilled graves. His solution was to dig them back up and sift through the dirt. After we failed to come to an agreement about a reduced rate for not finishing the job, I turned my back and exited the graveyard gates. When I returned to the carriage, it was empty. But I... I won't bore you with an account of every street I rushed up and down, every, every door I knocked on asking frightful questions. Suffice to say, after a fruitless search, I became so disheartened that I found myself drawn, as if by a siren's call, 
to the nearest bar. When I stepped into the Royal Tavern on Princess Street, the bartender looked at me with contempt. Come to pay your tabby, he asked, washing out a mug. Why, well, I asked the man what he meant. I was not unknown at the Royal, but I, I hadn't drunk there for some time and was sure I'd never skipped out on a bill. He told me that a motley gang of four reprobates had staggered in an hour before, drunk like sailors, and told him to put it on my tab. <laughs> Stank up the place, he added. Now, I assured him that I would never consent to such a thing, which led the honorable barkeep to threaten grievous injury to my person, giving me no choice but to transfer the contents of my wallet into his sticky palm. I then asked... <coughs> oh, Jesus. I then asked him sarcastically if he knew what fine establishment the delinquents had decided to patronize next. They said they were going to the Queen's Inn, he told me. I was out the door in a flash, all but forgetting my horse and carriage as I scurried across the cobbles, flinching from the judgmental glare of the cathedral. Well, I, I, I had no idea who the gang could be, but I suspected that they had something to do with the disappearance of the corpses and feared that this was some elaborate scheme to blackmail me. Now, the, the, the Queen's Inn was a ten-minute walk, but I made it at less. They were gone by the time I arrived, but the, uh, the staff, who were off-put as the men had uh, stiffed them, directed me to the next location in their pub crawl, the Kingston Brewing Company. I fled before I could be seconded as a dishwasher. I entered the brew company to find three of the corpses sitting at the bar. Oh, the, the, these men moved and spoke, but they were not alive, Your Honor. <laughs> Inadvertent burials of the living do happen, as, as you know. I, I, I believe you heard one such, such case last spring where a, a man pounded on his coffin lid uh, as loud, so loudly that he was, was, was dug back up only to accuse his wife, his doctor, and the gravedigger of attempted murder. But... Uh, even if these three men had been alive when they were declared dead, the embalming process would have killed them, not to mention the hours without air spent underground. Oh, I could only conclude that our um, immoral act of removing them from their resting places had restored to them an unnatural semblance of life. They, they cheered as I walked in, raising their glasses. <laughs> Evidently, they expect me to pay for this round as well. Oh, oh, they were a foul crew, Your Honor, although they were only in the 
earliest stages of decay, their, their movements were jerky and abrupt. Each lift of a monk's and bear flying over the sides, and the, well, the liquid that passed through their sewn shut and ripped apart again lips dribbled through the, 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 the torn thread holes and down their fancy shirts. <laughs> In their funeral attire, all three were wildly overdressed. The proprietor's two burly sons descended upon the dead man. Evidently, their scheme to drink and dash had been sniffed out, and the owners here didn't believe a benevolent angel investor was on the way to settle up. The eldest and largest of the brothers grabbed one of the corpses by the shoulder and then ugh, drew back in revulsion. The corpse, the corpse, then lifted his mug and swung it towards the assailant's face. What? Well, you, 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 you've heard about the bar fight that ensued. I, I will relive it. The salient fact is that the, 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 the corpse who incited the brawl was knocked out cold, and I took advantage of the chaos to, to drag him out of the bar and back to the cemetery. Uh, I found Mortimer there still diligently digging and, and left uh, our friend with him to be reinterred. I did not risk re-entering the brew company, but a quick walk-by indicated that the fighting was over and the troublemakers had left. I guessed they had gone to the Prince George Hotel, the next pub along the route. Now, uh, as you know, several witnesses testified that they saw me along the bar of the Prince George drinking with two sickly men. Now, I, I'm glad to have the opportunity to explain myself. You see, Your Honor, I joined the corpses to convince them to return to their graves. But once it became apparent that the dead men would not willingly return to the underworld, I decided that my only option was to get them drunk to the point of compliance. Well, they were far enough on that road already, and I figured after a few more rounds they'd be suggestible enough to follow me back to the cemetery and pass out in their coffins. If I may, Your Honor, I resent the implication that I was out gallivanting with the rogues who had started the melee of the brew company and who would go on to bite several pedestrians in a mad rampage. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they behaved abominably in the Prince George, slapping the waitresses' asses and, and challenging the men to fistfights. Oh, under the circumstances, you... You can't begrudge me for indulging in two or three drinks just to calm my nerves. So unhappy was I to be there, I, I found myself blurting out to no one in particular, Well, at least that bastard Lafreniere isn't here! Uh, oh, it was then that my blood ran cold. Where was the fourth Cadaver. Oh, ah, slurred the corpse to my left. You sorry I have some scores and suck. 
Well, it was my own turn to leave without paying. No, no, no. Now, this is where the eyewitness accounts devolve into speculation. You've heard from many well-meaning, respectable people who saw me behaving erratically. Now, as I have mentioned, I was seen asking after a gang of three drunks who claimed to know me and later observed drinking with them at the Prince George. And though I maintain my motives were more rational than they might have appeared, all this indeed happened. I did curse the memory of Lafreniere and store him out of the Prince George soon after, but for an entirely different reason than observers assumed. Allow me to skip ahead so I may contrast rumor with truth. I was found an hour later in the bedroom of my fiancée, Alice Asper. Her window was smashed. Lafreniere was at my feet, unconscious. My hands were bloody. Alice was dead, strangled. From their survey of witnesses, the police inferred the following. After a night of heavy drinking, I stormed into my fiancée's home and found her in bed with her ex-lover. Perhaps it was one of my drinking companions who had seen them together, hence my cursing the Frenchman and leaving the bar. In this version of events, I killed Alice in a fit of passion and, and, and beat Lafreniere within an inch of his life. But this was not so! It's true. I found them together, but this was no lover's reunion. Alice was white with fright, his hands around her throat as he shoved her violently against the wall. By the time I climbed through the broken window, the light left her eyes. All I could do was put the murderer down. Grabbing the candlestick off Alice's nightstand, I swung for the back of his head. He released Alice, and I hit him again before he could turn. <laughs> this one stunned him, and the third blow ah! knocked him down. Fearing he would rise again, I continued beating him until he was certainly unconscious. And, and, and I hoped, dead for good. Unfortunately, Lafreniere survived if that's the proper word for it, to enter his vile lies into the record. But, Your Honor, his very appearance confirms my word over his. If you would only look, his skin is gray, and he can barely move with the seizing of his joints. These aren't the effects of a beating. My word, he's positively rotting. Can't you smell him? Ah, oh, I, 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 I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I, I will c compose myself. I, I realize I, I am putting you in a difficult position. 
asking you to believe a man is dead when he's sitting upright in this very courtroom. But please, in the name of all that's holy, check his left wrist. He'll have no pulse. And he's wearing Mort's watch! Thank you, Silas. Before the final story of the evening, some death notices. The next scheduled event will be our Christmas-themed Hopes and Fears. The deadline for submissions is the 6th of November. And unless you hear otherwise, it will be here at the Phoenix. Is it here at the Phoenix? Yes, it is. It is here at the Phoenix. On the 13th. On the 13th of December. For details on how to submit, see the Liars website, where you'll also find post-mortems of all our long-dead events. And so... The final story of the evening will be widespread and unnecessary unrest on the astral plane by Mark Barlex, read by Kelly Wolfe. Mark is a journalist at the BBC. He began writing fiction in 2021. It says, insert joke here, I'm not sure what I was supposed to do with that. (laughs) After short courses at City University of London. His stories have been published in Bandit Fiction, Flash Fiction North, Bath Flash Fiction, and Your Fire magazine. He lives in South London. Kelly is an American poet, performer, journalist, and activist. She performs as Coco Malay with Poetry Brothel London, and she's also founded the Little Verse Poetry Collective, produces and hosts the Propaganda Poetry Radio series, and is poet in residence at Cabaret at Caramel. Kelly! Widespread and unnecessary unrest on the astral plane by Mark Barletz. What's with the ghouls, you want to know? Why so fucking rude all of a sudden? Oh no, Derek. Were you blanked in the corridor? Did they stop talking when you walked into the canteen? If you must know, they're annoyed because you cut their pay and benefits. And frustrated because you just did it. Ignoring rearranged commitments to discuss significant changes in working conditions. They probably think you're being rude. They should talk to the rates, you say. They seem happy enough. Hey, Derek, maybe talk to the race yourself. They're pretty fucked off, too. But you won't. Like, you won't sit down and talk to the demons, or the doppelgangers, or the banshee, or the jinn. You're not going to talk to the sprites, either, or boggarts. Thanks to you, 
They're all in the same situation and similarly vexed. Even the inanimate ghosts. Although, to be fair, there's no point talking to them because they're uh, inanimate. And um, probably at the moment being a phantasmal shop or a tree or a zebra crossing. And you really would not want to talk to the revenants. Even I not tried to talk to the revenants, and I talked to literally fucking everyone. Sorry, apologies, it's been a difficult week. And sorry again, but Derek, you're being a prick. I get that you're new and you want to make your mark. We know it's a competitive world and we need to adapt. But gradually, take us with you. These aren't the dark ages, although that's where we're heading if you don't calm the fucking fuck down. What's with the ghouls today, you want to know? Why so fucking rude? You're lucky that rude is all that they are. Ghouls take pay and conditions very seriously. If you piss them around, they react. When I say uh, react, please bear in mind that ghouls ransack graveyards and are seven times stronger than humans. In this context, react means tear off your arms and scream in your face. Not nice, although surprise, the screaming is worse than the thing with arms. Believe me, I've seen both. So, Maybe just talk to them before you start digging around with what they get paid and when you expect them in the office. And yes, please go and talk to the rates if you think that they're so happy. I think you'll find that you're wrong because you don't know what we do or how. Wraiths, for example, they manifest either to people on the cusp of death or friends and relatives of those who have just passed. Simple? Not really. How do they know who needs to be manifested to? Research, Derek. Research. Rates care. And when you cut what we built into their contracts for prep, they end up doing it on their own time. They're professionals. They do things right. So they put it in, in the hard yards before they clock on or after they clock off. But don't think for a moment they're happy about it. Don't think they're swaying around with their mouths open and their lank, deathless eyes locked onto yours represents contentment, they too are mightily pissed off. They've been wailing about it to me for days. What is the end game here, Derek? Reduced overheads? Are we to cut the bone already? See what I did there? Who are you trying to impress? Where were you before? Wasn't it 
wellness? Well, forget everything you learned at wellness. This is the dark side, the Cinderella of the operation. No one likes us, and we care a lot. Hey, Derek, how do you think talking therapy is going to help you line manage this amount of malevolent flakiness? You know, there's a reason this shit show is always on the edge of chaos. That's because everyone who works here is fucking chaos. Spreading confusion and terror as a counterweight to all the lovely things in life. Like wellness, which apparently you left shortly before it went tits up. Or angels and auras, which apparently is where you want to be. Sounds divine. You've evidently forgotten this, which surprises me, given you went through the same basic training as the rest of us, but angels aren't lovely in the abstract. Only in relation to the rancid fiends we're responsible for here. How would you know how exquisite an angel was unless you had something hellish to compare it to? Like a revenant. I'm going to be frank, Derek. I don't think you know that we had revenants on the books. And I don't think you know what they actually are. I'll tell you. Revenants are the animated corpses of often not pleasant individuals brought back from the realms of death. Work with me. What do we have? Malevolent spirit, tick. Fetid corpse, tick. Enough preternatural strength to escape its, its own grave, tick. Relentless passion for finding and tormenting the living, tick, tick, fucking tick. The living, Derek, that's you and me. Revenants stink and they're going to kick the shit out of us. Why? Well... Not that you'd know this, coming from the land of scented candles, but revenants have quite thin skins. Metaphorically speaking, they're actually quite leathery. When you confuse them with standard ghosts, which you have, they take it as an insult. When you send them a letter outlining your plans to reduce costs and improve productivity. And that letter starts, Dear Entity, they assume you're lumping them in with passive spectral duffers like crowd demons and ectoplasm. Revenants pride, pride themselves on being far more demonically proactive than either of those wafting semi-manifestations. All crowd demons do is lurk at weddings or third-tier folk festivals and photobomb mortal social media feeds. Who is this fucker? I have literally no idea. <laughs> They're pathetically annoying. Actoplasm is what it says on the tin. And no, it doesn't actually come in a tin, although 
If it did, at least we'd know where it was in a cupboard behind the suit. Ectoplasm just drifts. Most people assume it's vape smoke. <laughs> to be honest, Derek, if you wanted to cut something completely rather than semi-slice the overall budget, want to know who else I've had in my office? Shadow people. <coughs> At least I think I have. Um, there were these shadows in the shape of people between the door and the cheese plant. Maybe they were just shadows. But Derek, demons? <laughs> Bad news. The demons are also extremely irate. I mean, they always are, but, you know. Why, Derek? Why did you slash the employee welfare budget? Again, the devil is in the detail, and lots of other places. Demons possess people who will do anything to make it stop, which means exorcism. Ever been removed from a physical entity by exorcism, Derek? It's pretty full on. It takes a lot out of you and requires serious rest and recuperation. Now imagine having to do that without the requisite downtime and corporate-funded psychic intervention. Very tough. And imagine that happening every six weeks. Statistically, the average duration of demonic possession from initial entry to holy excision. It's unsustainable. But that is exactly what you're proposing. No wonder the demons are even more incandescent than they usually are. They'll burn out! And we'll have to go to, we'll have HR on our backs, and no one needs that. Think about it, Derek. Tell me you're at least going to think about it. But here's the thing. I'll tell you who isn't pissed off. Poltergeist. They have the best gig in town, so they're never pissed off with anyone, but especially you because you've left them completely alone. Phew! Good news, right? No! Terrible news! Why? Because balance. Because fairness. Most of my time here is spent making sure we at least give the impression that Everyone is getting a fair crack of the whip, which some enjoy more than others. <laughs> looking at you, headless horseman of Mull, although obviously you're not looking at me. <laughs> when you write to everyone, yes, the now infamous entities communication, to say you're slashing pay, hours, benefits, and perks, but specifically... Specifically tell poltergeists they're exempt. It goes down very bad indeed. If anyone needs a break this side of the celestial light, it sure as hell, pun intended, isn't poltergeists. Singling out literally any other team would have been better. Ghost orbs, for example. They need cheering up. No one takes them seriously. 
people see them and think, dust? <laughs> of course, you wouldn't know that. You don't get a handle on what kind of detail poaching quinoa. Why the favoritism? Is it because you've actually heard of poltergeists? Have you seen a film with one in it? Have you gotten one at home you're trying to keep on the right side of? If you like, I can send a demon round to scare it off, although demon I'm thinking of is an unpredictable fucker and might decide to stay. And Derek, a poltergeist will look like a whole bag of fun next to a demon. A poltergeist is just noise and broken crockery. The demon I've got in mind will inhabit your soul. Again, ever been exercised, Derek? Someone I know has, and let me tell you, it's not a pretty sight. Could you have made anything worse? Possibly? I heard a rumor about corporate uniforms with jaunty branded caps <laughs> good luck asking a revenant to wear a jaunty branded cap good luck getting your arm back after you try have fun getting one on a doppelganger you'd need two obviously no one two one Enjoy trying to fit that one on the headless horseman of Mull. Or maybe he's exempt. Derek, Derek, are you meditating? Stop that and listen. I need you. I need to tell you something. I need to tell you that you're not really safe in this job. Actually, you're not safe full stop. But you should know that right now you're hanging on to this promotion by your fingertips. And being sacked down here is not the same as being sacked up there. Severance is different in the underworld. Something gets severed, but it's not your pay. And there's talk of a strike? Think about that. Your entities are hacked off. Think about the damage that's going to do with the spiritual world. Think about how effing righteous everyone is going to be upstairs when they realize that downstairs is working to rule. Think about that picket line, Derek. Have fun crossing that. Who's going to lead them? You ask? Who's going to pull together this ragtag army of malevolence and rotting flesh? This stinking miasma of evil? How about someone who knows the business inside and out? Who spent the last four centuries, four centuries rising up through the ranks, learning the trade and serving her time? Someone who cares about this rancid mob, Derek. Their violent idiosyncrasies and their antisocial peccadillos. Who nurtures them? Who listens? Who can throw a protective arm around them and expect to get it back afterwards? <laughs> That's right. Remember the short list of two? You and someone else. 
think that was? Nosferatu? A fictional character, by the way. It was me, Derek. Me. I came within a golem's thumbnail of being top dog, diabolical hound of the Baskervilles, principal ogre of the eternal light. But you had the vision, didn't you? And the people skills, ironically. And the PowerPoint! <laughs> and, of course, if you ran into difficulties, you had me, your right-hand woman, thought of all knowledge, infernal and unholy. So Derek, yeah, don't worry about the ghouls and the wraiths or the demons or the banshee or the boggarts. Well, do worry about them. Always worry about them. Worry most, though, about me, your deputy. If you want to look out for number one, Derek, keep a very close eye on number two. Watch me, Derek. I'm watching you. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. And that, fellow denizens of the night, is our final destination. Feel free to stick around to talk to the liars. We get lonely, otherwise. And please do remember to take all your bones with you when you leave. So until next time, give skull-rattling applause for our It's All In Your Head authors and our out-of-body experience actors. Good night!